0: This program is brought to you by the University of California, Davis, on iTunes U. For more information, please visit us at itunes.ucdavis.edu. Go ahead and get started. So. Okay. Yeah. so, okay, so ready to get started. So first, just a reminder, the final will be a week from Thursday from 1 to 3 in this room, and I'll put up a sample final shortly, and and also, um, well, Spencer and I will have new office hours, which I'll announce on Thursday. Okay. All, right. All right. So I've been looking at randomized algorithms, and last time we looked at hashing, and in addition to the universal hashing scheme that the book gave, I gave, yeah, Median for this? Oh, um, I'm sorry. Do you remember what the median was, Spencer? Sorry, uh, 75. 75. Yeah, so homework for median was 75? Okay, so we introduced hashing and gave as one application. perfect hashing, I want to comment that hashing is actually widely used for all sorts of applications. Okay, there are applications to, for example, string matching. There are a number of things related to cryptography, where hashing is used to sort of hide things. As one simple thing that many of you may be aware of, password files are often kept using a hash function where what's actually stored is the hash of the passwords and therefore when you type in your password you hash it, look it up in the password table, and if it matches it's a good password, but that way if somebody can get the password table, all they see are the hash values and that makes it hard to know what the original password was. Yeah. And what I'm going to do is now is talk about the material primarily in 13.7 but also in 5.4 which is the closest point problem and in this we'll give a randomized algorithm that will also use hashing as a fast way to do lookups that the algorithm um, uses as part of its execution but this is the sort of more Traditional use of hashing just to implement a dictionary structure. So the closest point problem is the following. The input is n points. And for simplicity, let's look at a two dimensional space, though so this can be extended to higher dimensions. So the points are P1 through Pn, where each Piece of I is a point in two dimensional space. So you can think of that we have some region and there's a bunch of points located perhaps arbitrarily and what we want to determine based on these input coordinates is which pair of points are closest to each other and how far apart they are. So, for example, in this instance probably those two are the closest points. And and this comes up in a number of settings. You can imagine that these are Sites maybe that have transmitters and you want to know how much interference there might be based on the closest pair. It can also come up in circuit designs where these are locations of items and you want to know whether any of them are how close they are may determine what level you can power the system at without creating electrical interference okay. and other settings as well. So it's a fairly, it's a fairly classic problem. And the reason I gave two sections is because in 5.4 this problem is first introduced with a deterministic divide and conquer algorithm,
1: okay,
0: so this is in 5.4, and the idea is to find a vertical line that splits the points into n over 2 on the left and n over 2 on the right. And what you do is, having split it, find the closest in the left half, then find the closest in the right half, because okay, notice that you can treat each of these two subregions as independent problems. And then you just have to find the closest cross pair. And that is the closest pair where one is in the left side and one is on the right, which might be, say, this one. So this would be the closest pair on the right maybe this would be the closest pair on the left and this would be the closest pair that crosses the middle line. And one of those three is guaranteed to be the closest point globally. So there's a simple recursive algorithm to do this and in particular the nice thing is that for finding this cross pair you can limit your attention to points that are close to the boundary line, okay? So by restricting points to this band and then similarly for any point you can restrict its attention to things that are close to it vertically and horizontally, so you can actually do this step. This is the non-recursive step in linear time. I'm not really giving you the details since this is not really the focus of this lecture, and some of you probably have seen it before. Yeah. But the main thing is that what you get is a recurrence relationship that the time to find the closest pair on endpoints is equal to twice the time to find it on a problem of n over two points so the problem for the left and the problem for the right, plus order n time. And this is actually the same recurrence relation that you should have seen before, since this is the recurrence relation for merge sort. So this is solved by theta n log n. and I want to comment that this recurrence assumes that the points are pre-sorted. And so if you start by sorting them by their x-coordinate, it's easy to get this dividing line repeatedly. If you start by sorting them by their y-coordinate, it's easy to process them within the bands. But notice that pre-sorting only takes n log n time, so that doesn't affect the overall running time. Okay, so this divide-and-conquer algorithm will find the closest pair in n log n time. Okay, and there's a little work in doing the uh, cross pairs efficiently, but it's 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 not really that hard. Okay, all right, okay. All right, so this is a deterministic divide-and-conquer and what we're going to do now is talk about the solution in 13.7, which is a randomized algorithm that gives us expected linear time. And So we're going to go from, we're going to shave off the log n term. And I want to comment that we're not going to now assume this pre-sorting either. So it's a purely linear time algorithm. Okay. All right. Oh, also, maybe just to be clear also that if we think about two points, okay, if this is a point at coordinates x1, y1, and this one at x2, y2, by the distance between these points, we just mean their normal Euclidean distance. That is, the length of this is just the square root of x1 minus x2 squared plus y1 minus y2 squared. So this is the distance between points with these coordinates. And that's going to be of some relevance in our uh, algorithm. Okay, so so the algorithm that we're going to talk about now has kind of two parts that we're going to use randomness. One part is using hashing to do lookups but let me for the moment sort of treat hashing and lookups as kind of a black box. So we're not going to worry about the details of that initially. So the only other randomness is we're going to randomly order the endpoints. So we're going to take our endpoints and scramble them. So we're still going to treat them as p1, p2, up through p sub n, But this is not the original input order, this is a random permutation of the points. And we're going to process the points in order. And to keep track of this, what we're going to do is keep track of a special parameter, delta, which is the closest pair found so far. So initially, this is set to the distance between point 1 and point 2. So we just use the Euclidean formula, so initially our set of points is just the first two. So the closest pair among them is just the distance. And then what we're going to do is keep track of for i as a sign 3, 4, up to n the closest among p1 up through p sub i. Okay, so we're going to add points one at a time in this random order. and progressively update delta to be the closest pair seen so far. Okay. So at least at a high level, a simple strategy. And the issue then is how do we um, check whether it's good. So the key problem is how do we tell if our new point P sub i updates delta and to what? Because what'll happen in many cases, at least for random order, is that the new point will not change delta. The closest pair among the first i minus 1 will be the same as the closest pair among the first i. All right, so the idea is that at any instant, and let me for simplicity, view this as being in the positive quadrant only, though that's you know, not strictly necessary. But what I'm going to do is take my two-dimensional plane and at least conceptually produce a grid of fineness delta over 2. So by that I mean that I have conceptually horizontal lines like this at delta over 2, delta, 3 delta over 2, 2 delta, 5 delta over 2, and so on, and similarly horizontal lines at delta over 2, delta, 2 delta, right, continuing on up, okay. and so on. Okay. So at least conceptually I can divide up the plane into these squares where each of them is delta over 2 by delta over 2, okay? And keep in mind that this grid will change as delta changes, okay? So this is a grid that's a function of the current state of the algorithm, okay? What's the smallest thing I've seen so far,
1: okay?
0: And a key point of this is that, um, no pair of points are in the same square. And that's why I've chosen a mesh that's this fine, is that if you think about a square that's delta over 2 by delta over 2, Well, if I want to put two points within this square as far apart as possible, what I would do is put them at the corners, okay? And if you compute the distance between the two corners, okay, a simple um, bit of algebra tells you that this has distance delta over square root of 2 using the same formula as before, and since square root of 2 is greater than 1 this is strictly less than delta. So if two points were in the same square it would contradict our assumption that the closest pair so far so I should comment no no pair of points among P1 up to PI, okay, of the ones we've processed so far, okay, so conceptually the points we've seen so far are being, or processed so far, are being put into this grid the later points we haven't yet considered, right, okay, so we're All right, so now conceptually what's happened is we've processed the points up to i and now, or up to i minus 1, and now we want to consider a new point, p sub i, So we've put the first i minus 1 into this grid, Delta was the closest distance among the first i minus 1, and now we're ready in this step to look at this new thing. So what happens with P sub i? Okay. And let me imagine, just for simplicity, that P sub i would go in this grid square. Okay, I mean, this is just a matter of shifting the grid. Nice. And now, the key thing is that what I've shown here, this 5 by 5 mesh of squares contains all the squares that are within delta of this point. So if I go up higher than this line, remember these squares are delta over 2 high, so anything above here is more than delta away in the vertical direction. Anything <coughs> past this line is more than delta over way in the horizontal direction, and similarly on the left and on the bottom. Okay. So, so, what I have then is that if PJ is such that the distance from pi to pj is strictly less than delta then pj is one is in one of these 25 well yeah 25 grid squares Do I need to include the four corners? I think that I do, because in principle, if I'm not looking at where this point is in the square, if this point were really here and another one were really here, okay? So remember that this distance is is less than delta so if this is very close to here and this is very close to here it could be with slightly less than delta so it it is it is in principle necessary if I looked at where this was in the square I maybe could eliminate it but from my point of view really the main point is that this 25 square region is sufficient even if it wasn't strictly necessary this is still a constant number of squares 25 may be a little bigger than most of the constants we've seen so far, but it is still a constant, okay? So, what I will do then is, to do this, I'll simply say, look at each of these 25 squares and check to see if there's a point already in it. Some of these will be empty, in general. If there is a point, compare it to pi, compute this distance, check to see if it's less than delta, okay? It may not be, okay? Okay, Things that are in these squares could be farther away, but they're the only candidates. And among these, take the closest one, and if it's less than delta, then update delta. So, So, maybe just to write this out in a little more detail. We can say for each of the 25 close grid squares check if it has a point. pj, j less than i? If so, check the distance from pi to pj, and if this distance, then update delta. Notice that if none of these beats the current value of delta, all we have to do is to put PI into its appropriate grid square, notice it will be the only point there because if there was a previous point in this grid square, it would, by definition, create a new delta because anything that was already in here would be less than delta from the new point, Kay. And that's all we have to do, okay? However, if we update delta, then we have to create a new mesh and replace every point we've seen so far into its appropriate new grid square. Okay, okay and that's, that's the whole algorithm, okay? So if you believe that we can do the following high-level operations, that we can, given a point, determine which points we've already seen, if any, are in these 25 neighboring grid squares. Then, having found them, we can do this check for each. Then put my new point into the grid square if delta hasn't changed. If delta has changed, create a new mesh, and put every point so far into its appropriate new grid square for the new mesh. Okay, I mean I haven't given you any analysis yet, nor have I told you exactly how you do these grid square operations, but just to get the high-level idea. And again, to emphasize, the only randomness in this so far is to just order the points. Okay, so now we want to talk in more detail about how do we manage the grid, okay? So now we're going to talk about managing the grid. So we need to be able to create such a grid, um, add points, and do lookups. So those are the operations we need. We had to somehow be able to create it, which will need to happen whenever the um, delta value changes. We need to add points. For example, if we don't update delta, we just have to add the current point and we have to look up what's in these neighboring squares. So the basic idea is you can imagine that suppose our point pj is xj, yj. So what I'm going to do is map this to um, a pair which is xj over delta over 2 rounded down and yj over delta over 2 rounded down. So the x's and y's can be, in principle, real numbers. And what this is going to do is to map them to integers. So in particular if we think of our grid, and now let's just look at a few of the squares. So here this is delta over 2, delta over 2, delta and delta. So in essence we're saying that this grid square corresponds to 0, 0. So, any time the X value is up to delta over 2, it will get rounded down, up to but not including delta over 2, it will be rounded down to 0. Okay, notice the way I've done this conceptually the left and bottom lines are in this grid square the top and right lines are not because if you're at the next higher thing you'll be rounded not to zero but to one similarly anything that falls in here the x-coordinate will get done to zero and the y-coordinate will get to one so this square corresponds to Zero 01, 11, one one, one 10. Right. So given a uh, coordinate I know which, well, given the coordinates in delta, I know what to map it to. Right. And now What I'm going to do is view this as this pair, you can think of this as the key for point pj, (laughs) and what I'm going to do then is to hash this pair Of integers, so so this is so this pair is the key, the grid square number, kay. and so then what I do is just have a hash table, and so the simplest thing, the hash table, goes from zero to something like n minus 1, or maybe a little bigger, okay? So my hash function h takes these two values. So h of pj corresponds to h of xj over delta over 2, y j over delta over 2, round it down, and then um, this maps to something in the range 0 to n minus 1. And what'll be stored in the hash table Is the actual values. So let's say if this, say, for this point is, let's say, equal to 2, then in location 2 we'll actually store xj, yj. Okay. So going back to here, Notice that for my current point, P i, it's straightforward to get its grid number, Okay, So I can find the coordinates of this square, Okay, And then from that, of course, it's trivial to get the coordinates of the 25 surrounding squares, and I just compute those 25 hashes to say where do I look up in my hash table to see what point, if any, is there. Okay. Okay. So, it's, so it's a pretty straightforward operation. I'm going back over to here, and of course things don't always work perfectly, so in general I'll have some locations that are empty, no points are in them, and others where there may be collisions, okay? So maybe xk, yk. So if I'm using, say, chaining to resolve the collisions, then I can simply have a list of all the points that hash to this location. Now notice that these two points are in different grid squares, but their hash values are the same. So you want to distinguish the fact that I have this nice mapping of grid squares but the elements of the hash, the locations in the hash table do not correspond to grid squares. so there may be multiple grid squares that map to one location of this hash table, okay? And why is that? Why do I have, in general, many grid squares mapping to one hash table entry? Okay, so the hash function may produce the same output for two different ones, but why do I do that? Why do I not? I mean, I could in principle have a table that had an entry for every grid square. Okay, I just said there's this nice numbering of the grid squares 0 0 0 1 1 0 1 1. I could easily order all the grid squares in a linear ordering and have a table where every entry corresponded to a grid square. Yeah?
1: You want to start out with a smaller table?
0: Yeah, I want to start out with a smaller table, and in fact, actually I want to end up with a table that isn't too huge. So notice that the grid could have an enormous number of squares, okay, because how many squares are there in this grid? Now, even if I assume as I drew it that it's only in the positive quadrant, okay, if I can imagine that the highest horizontal is the maximum x value and the highest vertical is the maximum y value, okay, so it's sort of the rightmost point is how far my grid goes here and my highest point goes up to here, so in general this grid will be a capital N by capital N grid, okay? so the number of grid squares in this thing is n squared and that N squared is something like the maximum, let's say, XI. I mean, actually, it's not necessarily a square grid, actually, that's a little bit, It's actually the maximum XI over delta over 2, something like this, rounded up, times the maximum yi over delta over 2 rounded up. So this is sort of how many squares it has to go out to in the x direction, and this is how high it has to be in the y direction. And this in principle could be much, much larger than n. So my hash table is only roughly of size n. let me also say that this could be not necessarily n, but maybe some k that's something like a constant times n. Okay, so it doesn't have to be much bigger than n, but in general we would have a hash table that was probably slightly bigger than than n. Okay, but the point is is that the size of this table will be much smaller in general than the number of grid squares. Okay, that conceptually the number of grid squares, this, is our universe in our prior notation about hash functions. So the universe is the number of possible things we could be putting in the hash table, but n is the number of things we actually are storing, so that's all the locations we need. All right. okay, so that's 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 the key distinction. All right. Okay. So really, assuming that we can do these rounding operations in constant time, then we get sort of a constant number of expected hash operations using our results on universal hashing.
1: Okay.
0: So basically, so, well, I should say that um, that everything works fine except when we have to create a new grid. Okay. So the the basic operation here Okay, so let's go back to here. So when I process a new point, I have to do 25 hashes to do lookups to find out the point. Okay, there may be some collisions, but our results on universal hashing say that the expected number of collisions is small. So each of these lookups is order one. And if delta doesn't change, then all I have to do is to insert pi into its appropriate grid-square location in the hash table. Okay. All right. So that's all fine. Okay. The rub is that if delta changes, then I'm in trouble. Okay, then I have to do a lot of work. Okay, then I have to recompute everything, because notice, going back over to here, that these values now change. So what I'm hashing is now a new value. So I have to rehash everything. Basically I have to rebuild the whole hash table. So so basically, going back, let's go to here, so when I process point I one of two things happens. One, I have order one hash operations. Okay, doing constant number of lookups and one new insert. Okay, so this is or two order i hash operations when delta changes. So 1 is, by the way, always true. I always do order 1 operations, because I always have to do the lookups to check to see whether or not delta changed. And then, if it did change, I now need this. Now notice that this i depends on how far along I am right? It's much cheaper to process a change for 0.10 than for 0.1000, because there haven't been as many. Kay. And the key insight is that the bigger I gets, the less likely it is that I'll need to do an update. Right. And so in particular to do that um, more precisely we'll do the following. We'll say that um, X will be defined to be a random variable which is um, the total number of, let's say, inserts. Okay, so inserts is a reasonable measure of our work, since when delta doesn't change, I do one insert of the new point. When delta does change, I do I inserts. So it's roughly tracking the thing, but this way I don't have to worry about constant factors. Um, Total number of inserts um, for the whole algorithm, okay, in all. So if we run this, we do a random order, we run it, and um, okay, and in particular then to break it down, x sub i will be defined to be um, 1 if the i-th point changes delta, okay the i-th point is a bad one, we have to redo everything, and 0, if P sub i, um, does not change it. And of course, because of this, it's a 0-1. so the expected value of X i is equal to the probability X i is one. All right, so let's think about it. So What does that mean? So I've got points p1, p2, up through pi minus 1. I've already processed these, and I've got my current value of delta. And now I consider p sub i. So, what does it mean for p sub i to change this um, value of delta. So another way of thinking about this is imagine that I've set this group of points. And I then randomly permuted just these. So among the first i, so among P1 to PI, let's say that PJ and PK are the closest pair. So these are closest pair among P1 up through P i, okay? So among the first i, there's some closest pair, and suppose that these two are the closest, yeah. So what does it mean if in a particular order, the last one looked at changes delta, okay, In terms of this notation. Pi is the, one of the. Right, so pi must be equal to pj or pk. So there are two sort of bad choices for pi, among these i. So the probability that this happens and the probability Pi is one of these two is just 2 over i. Okay, there are i possible things among the first i that could go last, and two of them are bad choices. Okay. So, just to see you're all with me, what if there were ties? Okay, we haven't yet assumed that all the distances are distinct. So suppose that some of the pairs of points have the same distance as other pairs. What does that do to our analysis? Are we just trying to find one of the, we trying to find all the closest pairs then, or just one? Um, well actually, This will actually find all the closest pairs, because the things within this 25 grid region will give us not only the things that are closer, but also all the things that are equally close. So actually, the algorithm we've got will give us, if we bother to record it, all the closest pairs as we run, if there are ties. But what I'm talking about is this analysis which says when I have to update delta, that's expensive. So if there were ties, what does that do to the probability that a given point i is bad causes an expensive update? Well, I mean you don't have to update delta if there's a tie. But I'm saying I did an analysis here that assumed that P, J, P, K was the closest pair, So suppose that it was tied for closest, so, so as you're alluding, if it's tied, that's actually better. Because if, for example, if among these first I, if there are two closest pairs, two pairs that are equally close and that are the best, then PI will never cause a change, right, because I must have already found the other equally good close pair. So in fact, this is the result if it's no ties. If it is ties, it's in fact less than that since then if um, there are fewer possibilities for this being a bad choice because now we could tie as well as be better. Okay. all right so this is what we really wanted which is that the expected value of this is less than or equal to 2 over I okay. so we can see as I gets bigger the probability of this being bad goes down linearly with i. And now what we really want is the expected value of x, okay. x is the total number of inserts which is essentially the total number of hash operations. Kay. So this is just equal to the summation i equals, well, I guess you could say 3 to n, remember the first two we sort of handle differently, of i times xi. Because if the Uh, Actually, I should say it's this plus n roughly, okay? So we're saying that this is the number of bad, this is the work for the bad ones where we have to update the grid and then I have to do an insert in any case. This is a slight overcounting, but just to make it simpler. So, and the key thing is well, this is a constant, and we can move the expectation. I'm sorry. Yeah. So the expected value of this, sorry, the expected value of this plus n, and that's just the summation i equals 3 to n, the constant i times the expected value of XI plus N. And this we said was at most 2 over I, right? So the I's cancel, okay? and what this is then is approximately 3N, since we get not quite N terms, each of value 2 plus N. <coughs> for the inserts of the original point, okay? So this is what we wanted, that the expected work for the insertions, for the hash operations, is linear in N. i come from in the sigma semi. Okay, so the i comes from the fact that if you change delta for the i point, you have to reinsert all i points that you've seen up to that point, up to that instant. So that's what I was saying. It's the issue that as i gets bigger, changing delta becomes more expensive, but it becomes more expensive linearly with i. And similarly, the likelihood of Doing the update becomes less likely linearly with i. So the expected work for each of these operations is actually constant. All right, so now I want to talk about one last, or actually two last technical details one of which will lead into our next topic. So in essence, what we did is we showed that the work is expected order n hash operations which in turn take expected order one lookups. Okay? Okay. Let's say each, okay, so each hash operation by our results on universal, if we use a universal hash function, okay, so this is for universal hashing. Now, I just wanted to talk about a few things that if you really consider the true work, okay, which should include the work to actually compute the hash function. Okay, so if we want to open up the, so far we're sort of looking at a black box approach. But if you open it up and you say, okay, when I compute H of XJ over delta comma YJ over delta. Okay, what's the work for this. So, let's recall that in the universal hash function that we looked at, what we did was to do r operations on log n bit numbers. Okay. Right. Now in a sense, now let me comment that because it was that this H of let's say AB where these are A and B so I don't have to keep writing it was something like summation I equals 1 to R um, CI something using A and B mod M where this is just combining A and B into a single number some way, where these c sub i's defined the particular hash function we were using. So, so I don't care about the fact that this number, that a and b are each something like maybe log n bit numbers, but what I do care about is these r different multiplies. And I'll remind you that r was equal to log of the size of the universe over log n, or in our notation, log of n squared over log n, actually, I guess, no, just log n, okay. Okay. so it sort of depends on the size of the grid. Which, remember, we said could be quite large compared to this. So r, in principle, could be big. So if we really worry about the actual work in computing the hash functions, Um, it does create some problems for large grid sizes. Now you can imagine that if the grid is really large that means that there are a lot of points that are widely spaced. So you might consider that maybe there's a way of partitioning the problem so that you could say okay this group of points are all far away from others and there are actually some techniques of doing that, okay. Uh, I want to also comment that there's another approach that the book doesn't talk about that involves taking a random sample of the points and then finding the closest pair among them to estimate the true um, grid size you want and then forming a grid using that. Okay, you can also use that for partitioning the problem. Okay, and finally though, there are more complicated but more efficient universal hash functions. Okay, so you can find better hash functions to remove the R factor here. so there are ones that only use a constant number of multiplies in order to um, achieve the result you want. All right, and if you can do that, then you can also get things that are truly linear. Okay. But I did want to sort of just point this out to say that there are some um, additional details in, the, in this. Uh, I should also say that all of this sweeps under the rug how we might actually represent real numbers. In practice, of course, uh, computers like to represent things as uh, integers, in particular zeros and ones strings. So there are, are some, some additional things there. All right. Okay, so one other thing that comes up is that for these better hash functions that remove the r factor, you need – and actually, even for some of our things we do – you need a prime table size. Okay. So here, if you just – let me – let's go back here over two, st- two blackboards. So if we look at the hash table, you recall I said that the table is not necessarily n minus 1. It's maybe some size k, which is something like a constant times n. So the reason I put this in part was often what we'll want is this k to be a prime size. Since the things we proved about universal hash functions depended on the space we were mapping to being a prime. Now notice that in this scheme, not only do I need to find one hash function, I have to find um, potentially several of them. Since otherwise, if I had a lot of collisions in each one, then I'd have a problem. So, though actually we might be able to get by with one in this, but in the more complicated schemes we may need to. And that provides sort of a natural introduction to the next problem. And this one is not in the text, but there's a, a link on the web page, which is finding large primes. So we've talked about finding hash tables that are a little bigger than n, but also prime. Well, if we're going to do that, we need to be able to have some way of finding primes. And in fact, there are other applications probably many of you have seen for finding large primes. So in particular, in the RSA, public key encryption scheme, the key that they use is of the form P1 times P2, where these are each large primes. Perhaps as much as like 2 to the 128 you have S- strong encryption. Isn't their method, like, only, it doesn't actually guarantee 100% the prime, though, doesn't it? Like, what was actually used is like a probabilistic. Right. So, well, I haven't, I mean, there are are a number of different schemes to find large primes. And I'm going to talk about both deterministic and probabilistic ones. Okay. So let me start with a simple deterministic scheme. So if we wanna so let's think of something that says test n, which determines if n is a prime. So a simple thing is to say for I is assigned two to a root of n, check if i divides n, okay. and if yes, say not prime. So, if anything up to square root of the number divides it, it's not a prime. So, assuming that multiplications take constant time, which is a slight simplification, okay, this runs in square root of n time, okay? So, at least this algorithm has square root of n multiplies. Now, unfortunately, if your numbers are something on the order of 2 to the 128, then even a square root running time is unacceptably slow. Square root of 2 to the 128 is 2 to the 64, which is still too large. I mean, you maybe could do it with a fast supercomputer in the you're willing to be patient. And particularly since actually this parallelizes very nicely. And since you can do all the checks completely in parallel. So yeah, if you had a few million processors, maybe you can do it in a reasonable length of time. Okay. But if you want to go up higher, then it's not good. Okay. So as was alluded that Um, some of the best ways to do this actually are probabilistic. And let me describe the high-level scheme today and then Thursday we'll talk about how to actually implement it in more detail. So the idea is that we're going to have Probable is stick prime test. And let me again notice this is not in the text, though it is in the Corman Lizerson, Revest algorithm book, and there's also a web link. All right, so the idea is the following, so now let's talk about a probabilistic test of a number n, and the result of this probabilistic test will be two things. Either you'll get a guarantee that the number is not prime, or you'll get a question mark, saying, I don't know. However, the key thing is that you can design this probabilistic test so that it has the following property. If n is not prime, then p-test of n returns not prime equal to or greater than half the time. So if you give this test routine a actual non-prime, it will tell you it's not a prime at least half the time. Okay. Right. If it is a prime, then it will never say not prime. Okay? And if n is a prime, then you always get a question mark. So this routine never makes a mistake. That is, if it declares something's not a prime, it's not a prime. But for primes, you always get a question mark, and for not primes, you'll sometimes get a question mark. So now what you can have is the following algorithm that says, say, for i is assigned 1 to 20, do p test of n, and if you get all question marks, then you declare prime. If you ever get not prime, then of course you declare not prime. Okay. So, the key thing is that if you do this, you're always correct. Remember, you only declare not prime when you've been given assurance that the number is not a prime. But how about here? Suppose you declare something to be a prime. What can we say about our assurance? 1 over 2 to the 20th. Okay, so with, at most, probability 1 over 2 to the 20th. Okay, because if it's not a prime, every time we went through, we had at least a 50-50 chance. So you can say, imagine that if you give this routine a a, a number that's not a prime, it's as if you were going through and flipping a coin 20 times. And if it's heads, it tells you, yes, it's prime. And if it's tails, it gives you a question mark. So you could have gotten 20 tails in a row. And then you declare it to be prime. So if you get this, it means it's a prime with probability equal to or greater than 1 minus 1 over 2 to the 20. So 1 over 2 to the 20 is the probability that it's not a prime, and you were unlucky, and so this is at least the probability. So with pretty good confidence. Now, of course, if I want more confidence, I can just change this 20 to something bigger. Okay. So in particular, I would claim that if you change this 20 to something like 40. Well, there's an interesting question as to whether or not you should ever think that a program you write and run has an error probability lower than 1 over 2 to the 40th. Probably the combination of uh, even if you don't believe in just uh, uh, random alpha particles or something coming in and affecting the electronics of your computer (coughs) The odds that it was mismanufactured or that there was a bug in the compiler or the operating system or your program are probably at least one in uh, 10 to the 12th. <laughs> so it's not really clear that this is any less reliable than a deterministic algorithm. I suppose you still have those errors in this as well, but it means that there's the main error is now not being unlucky this many times. Okay, so now though the real question is, is, how do you get this property? Okay, and let me just give you the flavor and I'll talk a bit more about it next time, which is that there's this basic argument that says that if p is a prime, then 2, to the p minus 1 mod p is 1. So this is a basic number theoretic fact, Kay? So for example, um, 7 is a prime, 2 to the 6th is 64, mod 7, well, what, 9 times 7 is 63. So this is 1. In contrast, 2 to the fifth is 32, take it modulo 6, and you get 2. So this is a proof that 6 is not prime. Um, Well, so it's necessary that a prime does this. It's not sufficient. There are not non-primes for which this was true, okay? If it was necessary and sufficient, it would give us a deterministic test for primality, okay? So as a simple thing, you could imagine that for your test, you would say raise 2 to the n minus 1, mod n, and if this is not equal to 1, then you can say not prime with complete confidence. Okay. And in fact, this is a not a bad test. Actually, if you pick a large random number, it is highly likely that if this is true, it's a prime, and if it's not true, it's not a prime. But what we actually want is this property to be true for all n, not just for a randomly chosen number. So we want to say that even if an adversary gets to pick n to try and have it be a number that's hard to tell if it's prime or composite, that we still want to have our test to work well. Okay? So next time we'll talk about how we can take ideas like this and turn it into something that really gives you this template. Okay. All right. Okay, break for now. If you didn't get the graded problems at four, they're up here. The preceding program was brought to you by UC Davis on iTunes U. Please visit us at itunes.ucdavis.edu.